1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Mukherjee, the host of New Books in Law. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Bruce Ackerman about his book, We the People, Volume 3 The Civil Rights Revolution. Bruce Ackerman is the Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. His work, The Civil Rights Revolution, fills out the constitutional history of America's second Reconstruction period and makes a powerful argument that traditional understandings of the constitutional canon must be expanded to accurately reflect the American lawmaking process. Bruce, welcome to the show.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, that is, where you were born, where you went to school, and how you became interested in the intersections of constitutional law, history, and political science.
0: Well, I was born um, in the Bronx, in a working-class neighborhood. Um, uh, My mother's an immigrant. Um, uh, Neither of my parents went to college. Um, My mother was a housewife. My father was a tailor. Uh, I was a lucky guy, uh, uh, and uh, really, uh, there were no books in my house. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but so I'm a, from one angle uh, in a significant measure, a creation of the public school system of New York. Uh, and uh, I scored well on tests. And uh, so I got into the Bronx High School of Science uh, and uh, just another set of tests. I scored well on and I got into uh, Harvard College and Yale law school uh, and um, have uh, been lucky ever since. Uh, when did I, uh, become interested in all of this? Um, I was an argumentative kid and, uh, uh, and someone uh, told me at the age of 10, you argue like a lawyer. Well, that seemed like a good thing to do. I mean, uh, and, uh, uh, and so uh, that was when I started, uh, thinking that I might be one. Um, but, uh, uh, but really, uh. It was uh, in my, uh, uh, at Harvard College at Bronx Science, I was, you know, did math and science and things like that. It was basically in Harvard College that I found out that there were a lot of people who did science a lot better than me, especially math, uh, but that I uh, got very interested in history and political philosophy, and, and here I am.
1: Sounds great. Um- Leading up to your book that we're here to talk about today, The Civil Rights Revolution, could you talk a little bit about the first two parts of your We the People series and how that sets the stage for this work?
0: America, the American Constitution is born in revolution. Um, It, uh, uh, you know, uh, you see these founders and they all look like funny duddies in uh, odd costumes, but um, they were the. crazies of their time. If you were on the main line, uh, you did what Benjamin Franklin's uh, son did. He was uh, a Tory. <laughs> See, I mean, uh, uh, James Madison is a wimp, um, a true nerd outside of the, uh, uh, you know, everybody's killing animals and hunting. You know, he's like a slave owner and he's reading little books. Um, and, um, uh, and George Washington is a uh, uh, basically uh a uh, the junior junior side of a rich family uh, 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 so these people uh, are uh outsiders who uh risk a lot uh, and uh, uh for an idea and uh, uh and win after mobilizing a substantial uh a crowd of Americans uh who uh, uh uh, win the first civil war against uh, Britain. That's what it is—a civil war. Uh, uh, the same thing is true. Uh, you know, Thaddeus Stevens uh, is married to a mulatto. Um, when he's uh, a, a buried, uh, they, ha- they have a lot of trouble. Uh, getting him buried with his wife. Um, uh, another um, a person who uh, is way out of the mainstream and becomes uh, the most powerful man in America after the, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, who is another outsider. Um, uh, once again, what we have is a mobilized movement of Americans which generates a civil war. Just like the first time, on matters of principle, uh, uh, they are way on the vanguard. Um, no, um, uh, and uh, in uh, uh, passing the thirteenth, uh, fourteenth, fifteenth amendments, um, they are going way beyond what normal Americans think. Um, of course, they're all There are a very substantial number of them. Uh, but here they're very much even more vanguardist than the first time around and they uh, the 14th Amendment is quote unquote ratified uh, uh, by the southern states under military occupation not voluntarily uh, unsurprisingly the first reconstruction ends in failure. Thaddeus Stevens and William Sumner, uh, who is an aristocrat? Then clubbed on the floor of the Senate uh, because he's such a radical. Um, way out in front of the country and Reconstruction one fails. Now, the uh, uh, what happens after the first Reconstruction? Well, you know, the standard convention. Well, not conventional, but the uh, uh, one uh, uh, very significant approach to the American Constitution championed by people like uh, Antonin Scalia uh, uh, or Clarence Thomas is the answer is nothing much has happened since this great failure of reconstruction by radical crazies. Um, I think that this is a profound misunderstanding of uh, American constitutional development the Constitution was uh, enacted in in the name of "We the People," um, uh, the first Constitution, uh, uh, and it fails. It fails to prevent civil war, which is one of Madison's great ambitions. The Reconstruction Constitution gets its there in the Constitution; it fails, um, despite. It being a result of great sacrifice of the American people, uh, but it was too radical for the American people. Um, In the 20th century, uh, the American people actually, the transformations of the American uh, Republic in the 20th century, most notably the New Deal and the uh, Second Reconstruction, which this book is about, this last book is about, actually gain much broader consent than the first reconstruction or even the uh, American Revolution. The American Revolution precipitates modern Canada. A lot of Americans are loyalists <laughs> and they, that's how uh, we have why we have we split Canada into two parts the French the old French part and the English-speaking part. Those are all the people who ran away from the American Revolution. This doesn't happen in the 20th century. Um, uh, the uh, uh, Great Depression, you know, great constitutional transformations generally occur as a result of crisis. Americans, generally speaking, are citizens but they're happily making or, make, or, or failing to make a life for themselves. Marrying, failing to marry, getting a job and things like that. But crises bring their attention to the need for foundational transformation, and that's precisely what uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, and uh, the Congresses that he brought in uh, were proposing. Uh, They were opposed by the Supreme Court, who correctly said that the creation of the activist regulatory welfare state is not what the founders or reconstructors had in mind. Uh, especially this, the first reconstruction, these guys were private property guys. Uh, blacks should have the right to buy and sell land just like everybody else. They're no longer property. They are freemen. But the radicals like, the real radicals like Thaddeus Stevens wanted to give them 40 acres of mule. No way. Even what happened was too radical for the American people. <laughs> so, but in the New Deal, as a result of this conflict between the President, Congress, and the Supreme Court, um, uh, the constitutional issues were raised time and time again. If the American people had voted for Alf Landon rather than Franklin Roosevelt in 1936, we would not have had Social Security. Would have been declared unconstitutional. The Supreme Court was, as a result of uh, the election of 1936, switches very self consciously, recognizing that if it maintained its antagonistic posture on behalf of the old Republican Constitution against the New Deal Constitution, it would be destroyed. It was wise. It switched and consolidated the New Deal Revolution which serves as the framework for uh, the Civil Rights Revolution, um, which for the first time in American history arises and succeeds through a popular movement, just as the New Deal did, in times of great peace. 1954, uh, when Brown has decided, America to adjust, great
1: Can you talk a little bit about how this New Deal precedent that you just talked about how the Civil Rights Revolution took that idea of a mandate and how um, from where the people that must be earned through a mobilized constitutional debate in all three branches and what this means for defining the canon
0: The key question uh, let's start with the canon (laughs) <laughs> C-A-N-O-N, not with a double N. <laughs> this is not about the Second Amendment gang. Um, the, um, uh, the question is, um, and here I'm very much with uh, uh, Scalia and uh, 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 so-called originalists, the great achievements of we the people, mobilized, self-conscious, uh, 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 no ordinary Americans who are actually engaged in the fundamental issues facing the republic, argue about them for, let's say, ten years, and then actually decide that we should change things fundamentally. That's what we, the people of the United States, did um, between 1776 and 1790. That's what we, the people of the United States, did between 1860 and 1876, talking in larger generation terms. That's what the New Deal generation did, and that's what the civil rights generation did. The basic difference in The reason why uh, these formalists, who are basically invested in popular sovereignty as I am, they only look at the pieces of paper that passed the test of Article 5. Article 5 imagines a conversation between the center and the states. This was appropriate. for a federation, or was it a confederation, uh, in the First Republic. America's self-American self-understanding of of their government uh, before the Civil War is like the Europeans' self-understanding today. They're first of all citizens of France, or Poland. uh, Secondary, the European Union. That was the way people thought up and down the country um, before the Civil War. Uh, and there was a great Civil War on this constitutional issue. As a result of um, 600,000 deaths, there was a new sense of nationhood. The new sense of nationhood expresses itself not in a struggle between the sins, center and the states on whether there should be a constitutional amendment, but a struggle between the president, Congress and the court on whether we should have a fundamental transformation. What's happening right now today is the Tea Party, a movement is taking over the Republican Party and trying to, in a very familiar way, elect a president, President Cruz, let's say, who, if he carries Congress and the court, we will suddenly find out that we're living under a new constitution. This deep model is one which is inherited from the 20th century preeminent. We see it working out in the standard way in the 30s with President Roosevelt, Claiming a mandate from the American people, the Republicans saying you don't have a mandate. Alf Landon said 1936 says, what are you talking about? You're just like a crazy guy, except he loses in a big landslide. Um, then the court ratifies. We see this with Ronald Reagan. Once again, the government is the problem, not the solution. Now, He doesn't carry Congress to the court nearly as well. Bob Bork, a teacher of mine, Robert Bork, a teacher of mine, is not like Felix Frankfurter. (laughs) He doesn't get on the court. Um, Well, what happens in the 50s and 60s, from Brown through Richard Nixon, is a variation on this theme of the separation of powers but an important variation for the first and only time in American history up to the present. The court takes the lead in 1954 uh, in Brown against Board of Education. It's the last thing that either the Democrats or the Republicans want. The Democratic Party is a mobilized party for the poor and the working man. In the North and in the South, the uh, at the expense of blacks in the South. So Brown against Board of Education, handed down unanimously by a court led by a Republican, Earl Warren, threatens to break up the Democratic Party. The Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, is actually more predisposed to Brown. But it's really... a a, pro-business party. It wants to constrain the New Deal. So the court's putting race on the agenda is something that neither party wants to do. Um, And yet there it is. This leads to a profound political reorganization. In the early 1960s when we have surveys public opinion polls. Not as good as today, but they're substantial. People are asked, which party is pro um, uh, integration, anti-race, Republicans win? Not the Democrats. Richard Nixon, in 1957, uh, is vice president, so he's president of the Senate. He is um, uh, the, uh, the fellow who uh, is pushing the Civil Rights Act of 57. Lyndon Johnson is playing a, an elaborate dance. He wants to get a very weak Civil Rights Act through so that he can appeal to the North, but he doesn't want to do anything serious. Okay. Uh, so, how does the uh, 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 New Deal set the stage? We have the same... Basic structure, the struggle uh, between um, uh, the three branches, forcing both parties to reorganize this time and argue about race in a serious way. Uh, the uh, uh, in 1960, uh, John F. Kennedy is not is is uh, really, this is, race is not his thing. John F. Kennedy is uh, all about the missile gap. He's a cold warrior. Um, uh, Richard Nixon's positions on race and the Republican Party's platform are more liberal than John F. Kennedy's. Um, it's true, of course, that he uses connections with racist Southern congressmen to get Martin Luther King out of jail. That gets him a little bit of play. But uh, it should not be overstated, and his administration, until the very very end, is deferring and deferring. Um, he wants. He almost loses in 1960. Um, on the basis of a solid white Southern vote, he still almost loses. Um, if. Uh, if uh, John F. Kennedy hadn't been shot, would we have had a Civil Rights Act of 1964? I severely doubt it. But he was. And we have Lyndon Johnson here, who has been in many contexts until 1957 your classic Southern racist. He voted many times as a congressman between 1937-48 against the anti-lynching law, just like all the other southern congressmen did. But now he is a new dealer. He really is. His first job was that of a teacher of Mexican-American minority students. He, his heart is with the underdog, and. He now is president of the United States and he has to win by convincing the liberal North that he's just not another southern bigot. So we see now suddenly that the New Deal scenario can repeat. We have a president who's going to use his very formidable skills to try to get something in Congress. We don't have a court now, though, who's resisting. But a court... The, but of course was going to support one other feature that's really different is that in the first reconstruction we had a movement party the Republican Party of Thaddeus Stevens and, uh, uh, and William Sumner and, and others are a mobilized movement that's getting a lot of energy from the abolitionists and uh, and pushing Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, Democratic Party is a movement party getting a lot of energy from labor unions and pushing this time we have this Martin Luther King and many others and the civil rights movement not with a party and then Lyndon Johnson thanks to the assassin's bullet in there And we have this brilliant moment where Johnson and King and many others um, integrate the movement and the party uh, uh, and try to push things through Congress, which splits the Democratic Party. The Southern racist Democratic Party is is in dissent, and the old-time Republican Party of Lincoln guys um, form a bipartisan coalition. Then, so, you get then we get we see the Civil Rights Act of '64 passed in July of 1964, and that is something that he goes Johnson goes to the country with against Barry Goldwater, who has voted against the Civil Rights Act on the floor of the Senate, much to the horror of uh, Dirksen and, and all the other. Uh, a centrist party of Lincoln types. Why? Uh, Because uh, Barry Goldwater is against the New Deal. He sees this as another step down the path to serfdom. So, we have here two perfectly principled people. Johnson, it isn't that like Barry Goldwater is a racist. It's that he doesn't believe in this Big federal government taking over more and more of the private sector. You know, what what does the Civil Rights Act do? The Civil Rights Act uh, takes private business and says you have to treat blacks in a fair way. Um, uh, you can't uh, exclude them from uh, uh, the uh, uh, restaurants and hotels. Um, Goldwater, in fact, was supported something in Arizona to this to the on the public accommodation side, but he doesn't think that the federal government should just regulate private business in a new, new, do way. So there's a fundamental principle difference between the two sides, and Lyndon Johnson crushes Barry Goldwater the same to the same precise degree in the landslide as uh, 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 Franklin Roosevelt in thirty-six crushes Alf um, that's why Richard Nixon gets back in 1968 he is a modern Republican he's not a racist um, uh, he beats off Ronald Reagan who is uh, challenges him uh, for gold, Ronald Reagan isn't a racist either but he challenges him for gold water reasons he, oh, we've, we tried that in 64 says the Republicans <laughs> not again it's Wallace a real racist who is challenging both Humphrey and Nixon, um, and it's really then a key question for Richard Nixon: How much am I going to pander to the racist vote? And uh, one of the things this book does is to, uh, you know, anti-demonization of Richard Nixon. He his answer was very clear no, I'm going to support, and I explicitly say so, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Fair Housing Act of 68. So what we have here, and Wallace almost gets enough votes, uh, enough states to throw, this is his intention, to throw the whole presidential contest into the House, where he was going to make a deal with Richard Nixon to... um, Uh, um, make Nixon president at the cost of repealing these landmark statutes, but it didn't happen. Um, So we have the same variation pattern of movement mobilization of whites and blacks uh, in the civil rights movement. This time, there's this fascinating gap between the movement and the party system, which because the movement does break the Democratic Party, but gets this Republican Party. And then with the assassin's bullet, you have Ann, you have Andrew Johnson, you have Lyndon Johnson coming in and being a master politician, and then Richard Nixon coming back and affirming these things um, uh, in uh, 1968. Uh, that's why George Wallace is constantly going on the stump in sixty eight, saying there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties, because there isn't. Um, on these fundamental things. So the uh, uh, these landmark statutes are foundational and represent a much greater achievement by the American people than the first Reconstruction, you see, because there's much more of a mobilized consensus this time around than there really was last time around. Um, uh, and that's why I say that um, uh, if we're to honor the achievements of the American people, we should not accept this formalist notion that we the people haven't done very much except women's suffrage and a few relatively small things. I mean, women's suffrage is not a small thing, but a few things that are smaller than that in the last 120 years. Um, Rather, um, that actually... The 20th century is a century of greater engagement and achievement, if we judge it by mobilization, thoughtfulness, and uh, breadth of support, than either the American Revolution Constitution or the Civil War uh, uh, Second Reconstruction. Think of what's happening in Europe. Um, When we have the New Deal, they have fascism. Um, Uh, when we have uh, uh, we uh, are among the leaders uh, in the 50s and 60s Uh, uh, you know uh, Martin Luther King is modeling himself on Gandhi and we are much more engaged in this uh, egalitarian project than Europe is at the time Um, uh, and yet all of this is blanked out in the standard way that lawyers think uh, it's not blanked out so much in the standard way that normal Americans think. After all, we have Martin Luther King Day. Why? Why do we have – who signed Martin Luther King Day? Ronald Reagan. Um, uh, we don't have many civic holidays. Um, uh, we basically have uh, recollections of uh, wars, Memorial Day, Veterans Day. And we have Thanksgiving, Christmas. Um, then we have, we used to have, Washington's birthday, Lincoln's birthday in the North, not the South, and July 4th. What happened with Ronald Reagan, this is Ronald Reagan, mind you, is we have President's Day, because of course we're cheap, we don't have, you can't afford to give people off a day, you know. We have President's Day, July 4th, and Martin Luther King Day. Why? because we recognize that something really important happened but the Supreme Court doesn't this is why I call my last chapter betrayal because precisely it is uh, a tragedy that uh, by a vote to be sure 5 to 4 the uh, Roberts Court uh, finds key provisions of the Voting Rights Act unconstitutional um uh when it represents a tremendous achievement of we, the people, finally fulfilling and going beyond the uh, failed first Reconstruction. Uh, uh, and for him to strike it down, the lead to strike it down as unconstitutional shows a, uh, uh, a profound lack of understanding of uh, the great contributions of. Uh, uh, the uh, generation that's about to die.
1: Could you go into a little detail about the statutes um, and how they connected law in the book and law in the streets and how they brought about these great accomplishments?
0: Well, there are two basic principles. I mean, of course, I have uh, uh, a good deal to say about them in the book, but uh, there are these two basic principles that I want to emphasize here. One is uh, comes out of Brown and is then right in the legislative history of the Civil Rights Act of 64. Uh, it's the anti-humiliation principle. This doesn't talk about legal formalisms of equal treatment by the state. It looks to how people are treated in real life. When Rosa Parks was um, uh, it's uh, refuses to sit in the back of the bus and, um, and they take her out. Uh, and this is from her obituary, but she's there are many other places in which this is reported. Um, uh, people ask her, you know well what's going to happen? You think what's going to accomplish? Well, the answer is, of course, she could have been killed when she got off the bus. Uh, She'll be thrown in jail for a long time. She recognizes, but what she said was, um, the one thing that I have—well, uh, I'm sure is going to happen—is not going to happen—is I'm not going to be humiliated anymore. Every time she walks down that bus uh, uh, aisle, uh, she knows that. She is being treated as a socially incompetent actor. She is being institutionally humiliated when some uh, uh, a well dressed black person goes up to a hotel room and uh, asks for a hotel room in a Hilton uh, hotel, uh, and they say, "Sorry, get out of here. You're black. We cannot go going to. This is inter. This is." To be institutionally humiliated. This is what Warren says in Brown. Um, lots of people uh, 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 leading uh, uh, blacks as well as thinkers as well as whites say separate but equal. He's not saying pour more money into the black schools and then they'll be as good as the white schools. He says. Whether, that when this black kid goes on a bus and he goes past a white school to a black school, and he wonders why, the social message, the social meaning of this is perfectly obvious. You're not as good as the other side. Um, so it's this anti-humiliation principle, which is a first elaborated, In the famous passage of Earl Warren's about the hearts and minds of people, that that just separating these kids is going to affect their hearts and minds and humiliate them in ways that they're never going to forget, Um, uh, which is time and again repeated by Lyndon Johnson, by Dirksen, by congressional leaders on the Democratic side, Hubert Humphrey. Uh again again to explain why it is that so called private property owners because that's what they are, they're called you know, this is called public accommodations, but there is, you know, a little private property owner who simply doesn't um, want to deal with blacks. What's wrong with that? The old constitution said nothing. I mean that's up to him to decide. Um no, says the Civil Rights Act, Title II and Title Seven. If you are humiliated on the job, um, it's a private firm. That doesn't mean that there's still this evil of humiliation. Uh, and when we think of more modern terms, sexual harassment, what is sexual harassment? But being humiliated on the job. The... Uh, uh, um, This anti-humiliation theme, I should emphasize, is taken up by Justice Kennedy in Webster, the recent case invalidating uh, the uh, the, uh, key sections of the Defense of Marriage Act. He actually has revived, without acknowledging, and maybe next time he will, these themes of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 68. Then there is a second fundamental theme of the Landmark statutes, and that is government by numbers. Key provision of the the whole point of the Voting Rights Act of sixty five. We've had Voting Rights Acts for fifty uh, before, from fifty and fifty seven, sixty. They didn't do anything much. They were constantly being evaded because the courts had to do case by case adjudication, finding particular intentions. Bad intentions of voting registrars and things of this kind. Every time they discovered one, the voting registrars figured out a different way of evading the control. What the Voting Rights Act does in 65, and this is a time when the computer is just coming on stage, is to use Data Crunch. Say, if, oh, what's the percentage of eligible voters? What's the percentage of blacks' vote? If it doesn't look right, we're going to put you under receivership. We're going to actually scrutinize you. That's also used in um, uh, 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 in uh, 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 fair employment law under Title VII. Um, you know, Let's look at... Um, uh, uh, People in middle management, uh, 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 stage four. Uh, What's the percentage of people in the particular market that are uh, uh, qualified to do that? X. What's their uh, gender-racial balance? And what about uh, you, company Y? Why is there only one woman there? That isn't to say that you might not have a reason good business justifications why that happens to be the case, but you the burden's on you to establish it. Okay, so this government by numbers dimension is taking basically a very fundamental pattern of New Deal regulation, which, you see, the New Deal regulates the economy in lots of ways. Um, uh, You know, regulating the airlines and uh, and the and, uh, and other industries using numbers. But because the New Deal is a white working man's <laughs> New Deal, they don't care about the blacks, especially in the South. Uh, now, these new government-by-number techniques, which, of course, are now all pervasive, um, are being used as a fundamental tool for social justice of the race, gender kind, just as they were in the New Deal used as a fundamental tool for social justice and social security and such like that. Um, so those are the two basic themes which are both in the New Deal and in the civil rights regime re- uh, revolution. That's why I call our present system, which is presently under attack by the Tea Party and such, Um uh, Uh, as the New Deal civil rights regime in which government by numbers concerned with vulnerability moves from the economic to the racial gender um, uh, uh, side of things. Um, uh, And so that in both areas, uh, it isn't just formal equality, but real world equality, both in terms of real world outcomes does the voting system permit blacks to vote or not? Let's judge it by the results. And social stigma, uh, the anti-humiliation principle. Uh, so those are the two great contributions of the New Deal civil rights regime. There are many others, but those are the two central ones that I'm emphasizing in the Civil Rights Revolution. Um, and uh, they are imperiled right now. Uh,
1: talking about your anti-humiliation theory in Brown, and then your your quantitative yes. approach. Can we talk a little bit about your inter, how you're an interdisciplinary scholar and the importance of your looking at this data set um, as both a lawyer, a law professor, and a political science professor?
0: Well, the fact of the matter is I'm a lucky guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is to say, uh, uh, for reasons uh, I... Uh, it really is luck. I mean, you know, obviously I write a lot of books and things like that. Uh, but um, uh, for, uh, uh, I've had this chair at Yale and before when I was at Columbia, the similar chair, uh, where they don't ask me whether I know anything. They say, uh, uh, you know, that's what the Sterling Professor Business is about. They ask you, hey, Bruce, what are you going to teach this year? And I tell them. Um, and... Um, Uh, And I sit back and I read a lot of books. I don't watch television, and uh, I read a lot of books about one thing or another. I do try. uh, I mean, uh, you know, I I basically have these three uh, different branches of uh, scholar uh, stuff that I do. Uh, One are these. uh, this effort now has lasted, taken me 30, 35 years, uh, to talk about the turning points of the American constitutional experience uh, and their enduring meaning for the 21st century, how they frame our problems in the 21st century, uh, constitutional problems. Uh, a second theme is political philosophy. What's fair? What's just? What is social justice? Justice. That's what I wrote about really first, social justice and liberal state. Then a set of ideas, practical ideas for reform. So, for example, an Allston and I propose the system of citizenship inheritance, where we would impose a two percent wealth tax on on the uh, uh, people whose assets are over $1.5 million and, uh, and uh, award $80,000 of citizenship inheritance to every American. Uh, this was adopted in a very watered-down form, to be sure, by Tony Blair. Uh, and as it's seriously considered in many places, and Hillary Clinton actually supported it uh, for a while in 2008. I emphasize this because these, I have a number of other proposals which I won't bore you with right now, Um I emphasize these three things because I try to keep them separate. This series of books is not what I think ought to be just. This series of books is not what I think are the practical program for the next generation. I am trying as hard as I can to speak in to. As an American citizen to other American citizens, about what we, the people, our ancestors, have accomplished together. Uh, and the key point is to say that we cannot accept a uh, self understanding of our collective accomplishments, which ends basically after the failed reconstruction of the 1860s, but recognize how we the people have actually uh, built something not so bad. Um, And then try as impartially as I can, of course, you know, we could all all fail. Uh, 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 What the system we've developed that's evolved over time and what the central contributions are, not by thinking about what I think should happen in the 21st century or what ought to happen in a really just society, but how Lyndon Johnson and um, Everett Dirksen hammered things out together. Um, Not because they felt like it, but because there was a, profound social movement for social justice in this country that was expressing itself through elections. Time and time again, the reformers won. And we should respect that, and especially the courts should respect that. Uh, and that's what I'm anxious about when when I see uh, John Roberts uh, leading five for justices to uh, um, uh, uh, strike down one of the great contributions of the American people on very flimsy grounds indeed. Uh, 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 So he's inviting us to erase why we have Martin Luther King Day in the first place.
1: Would you like to talk a little bit more about um, this betrayal or do you want to swing back around to um, discussing Memory and uh, the importance of political history and what and how what the rising generation chooses to remember and what it chooses to forget. Yeah, let's talk about that one because
0: we we've already talked about betrayal enough. (laughs) Uh, But mind you, I just want to emphasize it's betrayal in part It's betrayal having to do with the democratic mobilized features of the civil rights revolution. So far as gay marriage is concerned... Uh, That's actually, uh, uh, you know, the the gay marriage movement couldn't have succeeded without the background of these earlier civil rights achievements, and this is where Kennedy is moving. So it's a complicated story, but on foundational principles of democratic, mobilized, we the people stuff, it's a betrayal, and that's tragic. But on memory, um, the, um, uh, you know, uh, uh the uh, question is, um, uh, 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 you enter the stage, uh, uh, uh of uh, maturity, uh, uh, let's take, let's take it. Uh, a 25-year-old today, uh, 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 the uh, who is uh, born in 1990 or something like that. Well, this is like, who knows anything about it? Heard on Martin Luther King Day, some inspired person talk, you know, I have a dream, movie clip, you know. Uh, uh there are these uh, little tidbits uh, uh that you managed to master uh, in a history class in the eleventh grade and forgot um, the um, uh, you're busy uh, uh deciding what you're going to make out of your life uh Uh, so how and you know who is around to um, uh, try to really take the past the constitutional past which is our legacy as citizens together uh, seriously well quite a few people but America's legalistic country and a central actor are the judges you see they actually do think it's important what happened in the 60s and whether it's the 1860s or the 1960s how should they remember how should ordinary people remember, there's a relationship between the two, uh, how should uh, college courses uh, remember um, the uh, uh, now uh it's quite possible, you see, uh, that uh, the contribution of the uh, 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 Americans who are uh, uh, saying goodbye at the present time uh, will be forgotten. You know, if you look back to uh, uh, or parodied. If you look back, as I have, uh, you know, how did Americans remember Reconstruction in? Uh, 1915, great movie, Birth of a Nation, one of the first great movies. The Republicans who gave us the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments were fanatics. They were of no significance. As I was saying, they are radical, <laughs> um, but it isn't a the thing. They are blundering fools. Is that how we're going to remember? Is that how we're going to remember? we're um, we going to remember really the 20th century as a, uh, as a zero or as the work of five or nine judges of the Warren court and nothing to do with your parents and grandparents. Um, uh, well, that uh, deeply impoverishes your self understanding of the past and therefore the future. I was telling you before about the Tea Party you see. I'm my politics on the case of Tea Party as a constitutionalist I'm telling you we've seen this before the movement party is the great engine of constitutional transformation in the United States The uh, uh, and uh, it doesn't even begin with Roosevelt although in the 20th century Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson are the two great paradigms of a movement a party, a movement a precedent, a party, or in Roosevelt in Johnson's case two parties getting together for a a fundamental transformation, but without understanding this background which is obliterated in the normal stories that lawyers tell um, we don't understand why at this moment it's an important moment it's important moment, um, regardless of what I think should happen.
1: <laughs> how do you think um, popular sovereignty fits into how we're interpreting the world, the constitutional canon right now, and how we'll remember the Civil Rights Revolution? Well, I think
0: that we are uh, at this very crucial turning point in the Civil Rights Revolution. You see, because uh, the uh, um, you know, if I tell you uh, Monica Lewinsky. Well, you know, you know, you've heard of Monica Lewis. You know her. You know, it's like a little, little anecdote. If I tell you, Everett Dirksen, who is he? Who is he? He was a great man. <laughs> you know, uh, the whole impeachment affair, like a hiccup. This is of no great importance. Uh, so, lived experience. Everyone lives through his life and, you know, the things that were in, uh, were in the headlines are very vivid, even when they're trivial. <laughs> um, we're at that moment in which lived experience is dying so far as the civil rights revolution is concerned. How in the next 10 or 20 years, ordinary citizens and, um, and uh, uh, lawyers and teachers understand collectively the legacy of the Civil Rights Revolution will be with us for a very long time to come.
1: Do you want to discuss quickly um, moving away from a case-centric study of law? Right. And maybe addressing some of the issues you're talking about. And
0: also I can... That- will permit me to pick up another theme that I really haven't done about interdisciplinary because I talk too much about myself rather than others. Um, The uh, 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 lawyers argue before courts. So they think courts are really important and they are. I talk about the regime. Voters parties Congress the president and put the court within the evolving regime um, the um, uh, and uh, uh, we the people constructed the American Constitution as a regime we reconstructed it we transformed it again in the in the 1860s we transformed it again in the 1930s and the 1960s Ronald Reagan tried to ref- reconstruct it again. He didn't quite make it. And we're staggering since then on what to make of that. That's a shorthand. Um, how does the court fit in there? That's one question that really lawyers are concerned about. But the other pieces of the puzzle are, uh, and my book is an invitation or my books, are an invitation to integrate the piece of the puzzle that normal lawyers are concerned with, winning particular cases, And political scientists, students of the presidency like Steve Skoranik, students of Congress, students of voters, and sociological and political scientists who study social movements. Um, See, Because when we say, how do social movements interact with courts? Well, some people do ask that question, but it's very attenuated. How do social movements build into powerful political forces that influence or take over political parties that then try to struggle to gain command of the presidency, Congress, then confront the court, which may cooperate, may not cooperate in a constitutional revolution? That's a much, that's really what our country's about. Or at least that's what our politics has been about. Successes and failures of that happening. Um, And... uh, The task, of course, is both to understand each of these generational efforts from the founding, through Thomas Jefferson, through Andrew Jackson, through Abraham Lincoln, through the failure of William Jennings Bryan, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, um, I'm just naming presidents here, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, 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 Lyndon Johnson, uh, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama. uh, Uh, Try to understand the mobilizations which succeed and fail and how the successes of a decade or 20 years of intense, passionate engagement and deliberation and decision for or against reform, that is the story of American constitutionalism so far as I'm concerned. If what we're really... uh, 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 respecting, or the first three words of the American Constitution, we, the people, um, and looking upon uh, our 200 years of experience uh, as the collective product. Flawed, but not as bad as some places. Um, uh, uh, of uh, 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 of uh, our... Uh, past generations of citizens to frame uh, your ideas and other people's ideas of where America should go in the future.
1: Well, Bruce, thank you for giving us so much of your time to conclude. Uh, uh, I'd love to know where you work and perhaps with the people is the project is heading next.
0: Well, I have to, I have two different things on tap right now. One is um, volume four on interpretations. Um, uh, uh, now that we have glimpsed, uh, and uh, happily, these books have uh, generated a lot of commentary. <laughs> uh, uh, you know the, the number of people who have become gotten promoted on the proposition that Bruce Ackerman is wrong. I take great pride in. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of commentary, and uh, and of course, my aim here is to provoke co- collective conversation, not to tell you the answer. The now that one could see that there is a a much deeper and richer not court-centered way of understanding the achievement of the American people the uh, the great challenge is one of putting all these pieces together in an in interpretation for of the baseline of the uh, New Deal civil rights regime uh, and to assess its its future so that's one uh, uh, task. Uh, that's volume four of We the People called Interpretations. Um, uh, once again, it isn't an effort to provide the right answer, but to provide a framework so that people can uh, argue for a while. <laughs> um, my second project is, uh, 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 different, uh, and that is to assess, um, the fate of constitutionalism since the Second World War around the world. Um, and, uh, and so I'm uh, 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 trying to uh, ask questions like, um, well, uh, the, uh, uh, which constitutional experiences are similar and which different? So from this perspective, the constitutions of India and South Africa are sort of like ours. Nelson Mandela is one of his great moments. Maybe even his greatest moment, but no. But well, one of his great moments is when he refuses to serve a second term as President of the Republic, thereby repudiating um, the presidency for life, which so many other dictators have adopted, Sicarda, let's say, or something like that. This is what George Washington did. Uh, this is what Charles de Gaulle did. Um, so we have a family of revolutionary constitutions. Uh, of course, the Congress Party of India and the African National Congress are very similar. They are established in, at the same time before the second, before the First World War. Uh, they have similar but different histories. They uh, uh, express themselves in co- constitutions uh, of remarkable character, by Ambedkar in the Indian case, uh, and. Uh, uh, the really remarkable Constitution of South Africa. Um, how do they, what are their similarities and differences? Okay, so that's one family of constitutions, revolutionary constitutions, of which the American is only one case. Uh, uh, we can learn a lot, and they can learn a lot by comparing them. Uh, then there are elite constructions. So take the European Union. Many people say the European Union is sort of like the American Constitution, federation. Federation. True. That's true. Uh, but it isn't a revolutionary constitution. It's a construction of elites, which have not, although they've tried on various occasions, to gain genuine popular consent. How is this shaped, and what are the... and uh, their experience as opposed to ours? Um, and so forth. So I have these... Uh, Uh, A small number of ideal types and then are trying to uh, uh, elaborate uh, different families of constitutional development over the course of the 20th century uh, uh, in a way that maybe will be mutually enlightening to uh, 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 when uh, um, uh, 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 people thoughtfully ask themselves what can we learn from this entire adventure of uh, Constitutionalism, which is you know, before the Second World War, the American constitutional experience was almost unique in its uh, viability, but not today. So that's my second project, and uh, uh, and maybe who knows, uh, I'll even have a third.
1: <laughs> well, um, both those projects sound fantastic. I look forward to looking at them, and I want to thank you for being on the show today.
0: Well, a lot.
1: I really enjoyed
0: it. So a lot, a lot of fun.